Hi, Billy. Thank you for being a part of Making a Musician. No problem. Thanks, Christy, for asking me. It's a lovely thing to be asking you. Tragic, who loves music, who plays music whenever I can. Been playing music professionally for 25 years. Started late. Love recording, and I just love the music scene, the people in it, everything that's good about it. All, all the positive sides of it. Are. Do you remember the first time music grabbed your attention? There was music all around me as a kid. The the Irish families around across the street in Edinburgh, where I came from and was brought up, and the housing estate. They all uh, listen to Irish music all the time, and I was always kind of part of that. Uh, but the first real thing that really hit me around the head was my brother, who was 10 years older than me, uh, came home from army camp uh, dressed as Roy Orbison, and he was playing Roy Orbison albums continually, and uh, that was something that really was inspirational as a six, seven, maybe seven-year-old kid. Well, do you remember any songs particularly of Roy Orbison's that he was into? Crying was the, was the one that really stuck out. Do you have any other memories of when you were young where a song or film clip really, really grabbed your attention apart from Roy Orbison? When I was young, film clips were really, you know, so really a big thing. You know, you seen snaps on the television in black and white. Uh, you must remember I'm 62, so, you know, there wasn't any colour television. It was all black and white television. But the thing that really, really sticked out in my mind more than anything else, I mean, the Beatles were, were just, you know, blowing me away as a kid as I was growing up because, you know, for obvious reasons, the, the music was so melodic and the lyrics were so meaningful to the time. Uh, but the thing that really blew me away was in 1966 when I, we, we purchased a copy of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely and I, I lay in my bedroom uh, during a really bad winter with a dance it, a record player with the speaker in the lid. It was a mono record player. And I had the arm up. The arm used to come up uh, and hold the next record, put it down. But if you held it up, it would continue playing all the time. So I, I listened to Sergeant Pebbles continually for, for weeks and hours on end while the snow was falling all around us. And I probably know nearly every lyric of that album. There you go. Following that, Sadden Peppers is probably my favourite album. But I mean, look, there's lots of them, but that's that probably the one that indelibly starts music into my brain. And would that be the same album you think everyone should own? Oh, definitely. There's no doubt about that. Everybody should own that album. It was, it was mind-breaking. It was, it was music-breaking. It was everything-breaking. It had everything in it that uh, every album should really have. It even had a drum solo. So there you go. Will you still need me? Will you still feed me? 
And apart from the um, Irish families over the road, did music play a role within your family? Well, it was my mum and dad's big thing uh, that they never liked music that, that we should. So my sister and I, my younger sister, who's 15 months younger than me, she learned the piano and I went off to learn the clarinet at nine years old. So I was sent off to a friend of my father's who played in a jazz band called the Allen Hill Quartet, who taught me big band jazz music like the Chattanooga Chukwu, sorry now, the Marzi, all these old sort of kind of pop sort of big band tunes. And he taught me that on clarinet. And I had to travel an hour on a bus ride from one side of Edinburgh to the other to go to my lesson. And I did that for about two and a half years. And then, of course, gave up because it was, it was driving me mad. And I wanted to be a guitar player because, you know, climate was so naff and uh, it was really uncool. So, <laughs> so yeah, so I, I, my mum and dad had a great influence. And at, the, at the, the parties we had, the New Year's party, my dad would trot me out and I'd play Stranger on the Shore or whatever the, the pop hit was going at the time that I'd learned, you know. And my sister played, played really amazing piano. And we also had a piano in our, our living room that my mother bought by saving up all our cigarette coupons and selling them and, and getting the money to buy, a, to buy a piano. Did your sister or brother bring home any music apart from Roy Orbison that you um, basically stole? Yeah, yeah. Oh, Definitely. My, my brother was a huge, uh, uh, he, he was a huge Robson fan, but he was a big Beatles fan. He, I mean, my brother was 10 years older than me, so, uh, you know, he was bringing music that I, that I was listening to. Whether I was listening to it or not, it was actually, it was actually seeping into my brain. My sister was learning to be a concert pianist, and she was really good, but she just had enough and couldn't hack it. And really doesn't play the piano anymore or, or, or anything anymore, which is, which is kind of sad. But it looked, the piano sat there for years and her and I used to sit in it and play tunes together, you know? And it was one of those wonderful things having a piano. And where, where I grew up, there was very few people had a piano. So it was amazing stuff, really, if you think about it. I was lucky enough to have grandparents that had a piano and, it, and a music that comes together, like my auntie playing the piano or my mum playing the piano and my grandfather getting on the harmonica. It's um, really quite amazing how that just all seeps into your being. We had an uncle who was my father's younger brother who used to uh, appear on the doorstep drunk on a, some Saturday nights and, and want to use the piano because he never had one. And he could play by ear like any tune you, you shouted. So we used to shout a tune and he used to play it. He was one of these amazing human beings you know, that could do that. My uncle Harry was actually, and he was probably the coolest dude in the whole family as far as we were concerned. There was a lot of music in where I come from in my street, you know, uh, he kind of had three options. You either went to the mines, you either become a football player, as a soccer player, or you become a musician and that was your ticket out of the housing estate and out of the, the dreary life of living in Edinburgh in those days, or in Scotland in those days. It's hard to um, imagine being in Australia what that would be like. I don't think anybody in the, that lived in Australia could imagine what that was like. However, a lot of people did come from Scotland and England and Wales and Ireland and all over, escaped that, uh, that stuff and come to make a new life and they and brought their stories with them. So, you know, the stories have been told and, they, and they've been told in song and they've been told in, in parties and all around Australia. People kind of understand a, a little bit of that as well. And has that background played much into your own songwriting? Yeah, yeah, very much so. I'm in the middle of recording a new CD and I just, I'm recording a song called The Lonely Journey Home, which is a, a song, a song about a, 
returning on that plane back to see your family in Scotland and, and the long journey coming back here again and thinking whether you've made a mistake or whatever, and also the fact that uh, it's semi-autobiographical, it's a bit about me, I suppose, but it's also about uh, all the, the musicians that, that came here and from Scotland and they you know, kind of established the music scene. We're talking about Jimmy Barnes, Stevie Wright, uh, the Young Brothers, uh, Malcolm, they, they all came out here and were in hostels in Sydney and all over, and uh, they formed groups, and they, the musical scene is basically was part of that and this song is part of that yeah very much so i was gonna get into because you came here quite as a young fellow at 16 so what what sort of music was around in australia when you was when you first got here the, the first song i heard that really stuck out was most people i know think that i'm crazy most people i know and uh, Eagle Rock by, uh, of course, Daddy Cool. And it was funny because years later, I was playing uh, at the Byron Bay Blues Festival in 99, I think it was, and Billy Thorpe was on the bill and he was standing next to me in the, the artist bar and I was waiting for him to get a drink and I sort of turned to him and said to him, hey man, I, you know, when I came off the plane way back then, that song you used was the first song I heard that really stuck and he, he was he was a pretty arrogant little fellow, that guy, and he, he just told me to fuck off. So uh, that's, that's pretty sad. And the thing is, he was smaller than me. There's not that many people smaller than me. <laughs> so uh, yeah, yeah, that that was my, that that was what was around when I first came here. The rock and roll was just starting. 1973-74, I got invited to uh, I got invited to a gig at Checkers Club in Golden Street in Sydney. I lived in Sydney in those days. And it was uh, ACDC's first major gig. Uh, we got to meet them because they were friends of a friend. Blah, blah, blah. And, yeah, it's amazing. So that's actually documented in a few books that have been written about the band. So yeah, that, that gig, there you go. And I was wondering, how was the music that you got to listen to in Australia different to the music you were listening to before you left? Well, it, it, it wasn't really different. It just took a long time to get here because it, everything took a couple of months to get from there to here because of the communications. You must remember, like, you know, we never had it, the internet and we only had phone lines and they were they were really expensive. And you, you wrote letters, you know, and they, yeah, so it took a long time to get here, a lot of the stuff. So, you know, anything that came out uh, over there, uh, you know, sometimes a couple of years it took, <laughs> especially in the late 60s and early 70s. So uh, it got better as the 70s went along, but it certainly... It was hard to, to get good good music in Australia in the early days. And is there a song that, apart from that Roy Orbison song, was there a song as a teenager that you really loved? Well, most people I know think I was crazy, but just, it blew my mind. It was, it was a rock song. It was kind of, it touched something. Uh, Eagle Rock was, was something I used to, the, the tune was fantastic. Turn around. 
turn around once. Yeah, there was a whole bunch of Australian guys starting to make music, you know, and like John English, uh, unfortunately, this guy, the Easy Beats, who were, for me, were huge, you know, uh, Jeff St. John, there was all these amazing bands starting to sort of take off. And of course, in the mid seventies, we started to get bands like Matt Finish, Midnight Oil. Uh, I, I've seen Radio Birdman, one of Radio Birdman's first gigs at the Frenchies Club in, in Oxford Street in Sydney. You know, I mean, I was kind of at the at the pointy end of everything when it all sort of started. You know, so I kind of have fond memories of all that stuff. lucky because I think um, nowadays we don't have the knowledge of the scene as much as that and I think Countdown had a lot to attribute to also all those bands sort of getting publicity and getting known and that vibrant scene that of creativity that just seemed to be born from that era. Yeah, no doubt about it. Molly Meldrum uh, more deserving of a, a knighthood than, <laughs> than anybody in Australia as far as his contribution to music so. I mean, you know, whether you like Molly Meldrum or not, I actually liked him. He was an amazing guy, and they, and he had more vision about Australian music than anybody really had. And he was the guy that really, really uh, put it down, you know. Fair play to him. It was quite amazing. My mother played Neil Diamond a lot when I was a young child, and I still feel very, many years later, a f familiarity with these songs, even though I've never deliberately listened to Neil Diamond's myself. So did your family have any musical obsessions like that that just got into your soul? Uh, none. No, not really. Look, I remember my mother really getting into the Bee Gees when they first came out, you know, Massachusetts and stuff like that. Something's telling me I must go home. We listen to a lot of Scottish stuff as well, so we listen to uh, we listen to the Corries and we listen to all different kinds of big band stuff. A funny thing that happened as I was growing up, uh, my art teacher at Liberton Secondary School uh, was a guy called Roy Williamson, who was in a band called the Corries. I never knew this at the time, of course, I didn't know he played music, but he was the guy that wrote Flower of Scotland, our kind of pseudo-national anthem that everybody sings in Scotland now. He died with a brain tumour in the 70s, but uh, they were really big. So. We were sort of kind of in the middle of sort of uh, the Scottish country music, country dance music, uh, sort of folk music, uh, the Beatles. Uh, uh, yeah, there was a whole gamut of music that was all running around. And then, you know, the Rolling Stones started, the Kinks. Look, I was a huge lover of the Kinks as well. They were a great band. Everybody was singing it. I got my hair cut like Rod Stewart, you know what I mean? You know? If you, if you've seen my head, it's nothing like Rod Stewart, I can assure you. I wish I had it had his head as well. Wake up, Maggie, I think I got something to say to you. It's late. 
Scott, the influences of music were broad, uh, and my family listened to everything on the radio, and of course bought the singles that were going around and put them on the dance hit record player and the one speaker in the lid. So we never had hi-fi or anything. We had, you know, what we listened to was, you know, sort of thing. When did you first become aware that you wanted to become a musician? Well, look, if you're learning music as a kid, I'm learning this music, and I've done. I don't get it at all because I don't know, you know, I'm nine years old and I want to be a guitar player and I want to be the Beatles, you know, and I'm playing a clarinet, so I really didn't know and I thought I gave it up. And then in my 20s, I picked, somebody gave me a clarinet and I started playing it. Boom, it started, came back, I forgot it, I just started playing again. Uh, and then I sort of kind of moved on and bought a saxophone and I sort of taught myself about the saxophone and, and then I started playing in an Irish band and, and I, I started playing in music with, uh, you know, with all these different musicians and they, yeah, and I knew then I really wanted to become a musician because it fulfilled something I needed and they, it made my life kind of complete, if that's, that's not, I don't know if that's a bit naff, but it, it kind of, it, it filled a gap that, that was missing in my life as far as how I felt about life. So yeah, music sort of had that relationship, that bridge between certain things that, that I could do and also, and here's something I can Okay, admit to. I always wanted to be liked by people, and I thought playing music, people would like me, and also uh, uh, women would like me, and I'd get more women, and that's actually been true, you know. Into playing the clarinet. I was about 24, 25. I started, uh, I know, I was before that, I was probably about 22, 21, 22. Because uh, my ex wife's sister had a clarinet and they gave me that. I think I bought it off them. They didn't give me it. I think I bought it off them and I started mucking around with it. So, yeah, that was when I, I so it was probably about 21, 22. I hadn't seriously played clarinet since I was 12 years old. So it was a 10 year gap. You talked about, you know, wishing you played guitar. Um, have you ever tried? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I can't play guitar. I cannot play guitar. I, my fingers are too short. That's my excuse. I just can't. I just, I just, my brain won't do it. I mean, I can play rock piano and, and understand what the chords and piano. Not, but no, I can't. I can't play guitar. No, I can play air guitar. Mostly air bass. <laughs> I saw you at a gig recently playing air guitar on your saxophone and... Yeah, yeah, I do. I strummed, I strummed the saxophone. You're right, yeah. What I was going to ask is, what, what other instruments do you play now? Uh, well, I play saxophone, clarinet and rock piano and the, you know, you know all the saxophones I can play. I, I play kick, like kick drum and washboard and sing, so yeah, I suppose that's all part of it as well. With the washboard, how did you decide that that was an instrument that you thought was going to be a good part of your music? 
Well, I started playing Zydeco music back in the sort of kind of early 90s. Uh, I kind of really liked that kind of music. And uh, when I come to Melbourne, I started a band called Crawfish Dave. And I was the person that was given the washboard. So it was kind of this. You learn that because, you know, because we need, we need that in there as well. So I just, uh, I washboard and started playing the washboard. And uh, I had a bit of rhythm. So started grooving along and catching the rhythm. And they... Uh, that, that started my washboard career. I never had any lessons. <laughs> How did you actually find um, Zydeco and Cajun music? I seen a movie called The Big Easy, uh, uh, which was a movie that was based, I think it was late 80s, early 90s, and it was about New Orleans, and it was about uh, Dennis Quaid and, and Ellen Barkin and, and uh, just all these shots in New Orleans and all this great music and a guy called Buckwheat Zydeco was uh, playing a tune on, on a veranda uh, and, and actually he died he died two days ago three days ago uh, uh, age 68 uh, so Buckwheat is gone now uh, so he I'd, I'd say Buckwheat Zydeco got me into playing Zydeco And is Zydeco basically Cajun, or is there a difference between those those two styles? Cajun is is, is, is the white music, so it, it, it's it's played by people from Southwest Louisiana, the Arcadians, and they were driven out by the British out of Canada, and they made the long journey down to Southwest Louisiana, where they made their homes and they brought their music with them. Zydeco is uh, uh, like a Creole, the black version of it. So the, the black people. It created that, and it's, it's mostly blues, predominantly blues, and, and of course, and, and they use the accordion as well, so they use the button accordion generally, and that kind of started around about the 1920s, uh, and they and turned into a real genre of music, uh, which is kind of kind of cookie, but it's kind of it's kind of got a lot bigger these days, you know. It's really an upbeat style, like you know, it's a happy style of music. Does, is that what keeps you playing in that style? Yeah, yeah, I'm not particularly a great lover of white boy blues, as you, you know, I sort of kind of find that stuff a bit, sort of, a bit naff. So I always thought, you know, playing this music, which is predominantly blues, but, but with a two-step in it as well, and two-step is kind of like a Scottish thing as well. So I thought with a two-step and sort of fast blues, it, it, it really appealed to me. And I felt like I could, you know, I could copy it, I suppose, because it was kind of, I didn't, you know, I never at any time thought I was one of them, you know. I, I just thought, well, here I go, so I like this music, it appeals to me, it makes people dance, it seems to me, it make, makes people happy, it's very visual. Uh, so this is the sort of thing I'd like to do, so I, 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 that's why I started getting into it, you know. With your different bands, how, how have you come about forming each of those over time? Well, I came to I came to Melbourne and I came to Melbourne in 1995 permanently. I started to live in this warehouse and uh, in, in, in Swan Street, which was a, a rehearsal recording space and with a place up up the stairs to live. And uh, I kind of had this idea that I wanted to you know form a, a Zydeco band. So I started asking around and and uh, 
I came up with a whole bunch of different people that were involved in Zydeco music, guys from Zydeco Jump, uh, and so it sort of kind of transpired, it all came together like that, and the band took off, kind of, so it became a kind of, kind of rock and Zydeco band around Melbourne, and then we started doing festivals, we played Byron Bay, and a couple of years in a row we played the St Kilda Festival, we played all the big major festivals, Fort Ferry, and it was going, it was going swimmingly, uh, and all different people were in that band. So, and to this day, that band still actually plays every now and again. It was actually called Crawfish Dave and the Zydeco Bridesmaids. But before you came to Melbourne, you were in a um, band called Shabin. Yeah, I was in an Irish band called Shabin. Yeah, which is a, which is a, which is it's Irish for a legal drinking house, which is just appropriate considering. There was a whole bunch of Irish musicians that were living in Brisbane and, and up the Sunshine Coast where, where I used to live and they, they started this band called Shabin and started playing around the place and we supported the Furies and we played for Mary, the president of the island, Mary Robinson. We did all these amazing gigs and we were all, yeah, it was, yeah, I mean, I, I must admit that uh, I was in a way above my head. These guys were pretty good Irish musicians. They played really good. They were really good at what they did. I was just uh, again the hat that got the gigs. So uh, yeah, there you go. And do you remember your first live gig that you played? Yeah, I do actually. With that band, I do. Yeah, it, it was at Grattan in, in a pub, the hotel in Grattan. Just jogged my memory. A hotel in, in, in Grattan, where which is in sort of the Lockyer Valley uh, between Toowoomba and Brisbane, and we played in the beer garden. And I remember it was really, really, really bad. <laughs> so yeah, yeah that, was, that was kind of, yeah, it went from there, of course, like everything, you get better as you go along, you know. When did you actually write your first song? Uh, I wrote my first serious song, uh, and it uh, was, uh, I'd say it was 19, oh, look, I was writing songs of Crawfish Dave, but they were kind of Zydeco songs, but they were things like, you know, pop that coochie, pop it all, and that, pop that, you know, it was sort of kind of these kind of, uh, you know, chanty type songs. But my first serious song that I wrote uh, was a, a song called Tamara, which, uh, funny enough, I'm going to re-record it. It was written about a street worker who I met in a pub called Scruffy Murphy's in Edinburgh, who told me about her, her tragic life. Uh, uh, and she had been at the court next door getting criminal confrontation for her boyfriend, a drug, drug-infused boyfriend, chopping her fingers off with a meat cleaver. So it was kind of, uh, uh, she told me her story, I don't know why, and it was a most amazing story. You'll have to buy the CD to hear the story, sorry. It's interesting that you um, say that you're re-recording that, because my next question was going to be, how does it compare to the last song you wrote? Oh, uh, well, you get better at songwriting. I'm not a songwriter. I, I don't see myself as a songwriter. I, I write songs as they come in my head. So tomorrow compared to the song, oh, oh The Lonely Journey Home. The Lonely Journey Home is just intrinsically a much better song. And tomorrow I, I'm re-recording it and, and I'm finding it, it's a pretty weak kind of song. <laughs> <laughs> I never sang the first original. I never sang on the first original recording of tomorrow because I wasn't confident about singing it. Uh, and a woman called Jackie Hamilton, uh, who I went to music college with, who is now in a band called Baba, she sang it, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm now recording it and I'm singing it. So you, your confidence has definitely grown as you've moved through your music, and interesting when you pick up going to music college, I was wondering how you decided, because I'm pretty sure you did a jazz course at music college, so what made you choose a jazz course? 
I played a saxophone. <laughs> uh, I was struggling for money and I was kind of doing all these crappy jobs and trying to make money at music. And I got offered uh, through Centrelink, they offered me a position at uh, NMIT uh, uh, for basically nothing uh, to study music. So that got them off my back. And, and of course, uh, I, I, I got uh, I got to you know, study music. So I was really fortunate and lucky that I was there at the right time and that was available to us and it was a fantastic thing. Hey, and I got to meet your husband. <laughs> yes, that's true. How does the jazz, you know, training um, help you as a Zydeco musician? Well, jazz is predominantly blues, uh, or blues is predominantly jazz, I probably should say. Any form of music, learning any form of music helps over the big picture because it's all kind of the same thing. Jazz has gone from a, a single basic sort of blues, sort of pin sort of type music to uh, how I see jazz today is that the, the Nazis have got a hold of it and turned it into an academia and kind of a written it all down when, it was, when in fact it was a free-form kind of music was expressed free-form, you know, and so I don't particularly like today's jazz. I think it's far too academic and it's it turned it into a, a subject rather than a free-form sort of type of thing, you know, so I'm not the biggest big jazz head, but learning any type of music, learning the notes and where they go and why they're there and the reasons they're there, the reasons why certain chords and certain keys make you feel, you know, sad or happy or it's all part of that music. So, you know, major chords generally make you feel happy and minor chords generally make you feel really sad and the both of them together make you feel weird. <laughs> That's so true. And what was the first song that you ever learnt to play? Oh, I learnt to play lots of songs when I was a kid on the clarinet, but it, one of the ones that really stands out for me was the one, it was the first song I played live as a 12 year old, I think it was, and I, I played Stranger on the Shore, which was by Acker Milk, which is a sort of kind of you know, standard clarinet sort of tune that everybody kind of knows. So they, I, I played that the first time I ever played was that was live. Was, was in Edinburgh in front of all white people in a pub called the, the Marlin Pub in Edinburgh. You know, seeing that you've been in the music scene in Australia for quite a long time, from Queensland to Melbourne, I was wondering, how has it changed? Everything changes. Uh, Electronics, the approach to music, the shows on television that promote people, you know, like the egg factor and so on and so forth. And I hate to say these sorts of things, but I still firmly believe that you do your apprenticeship as a musician, you go to the local pub and you play and you make a fool of yourself and you, you, you go back to your bedroom and you hone your craft and you keep going back to the pub until you get it right. And, I, I, I believe that. I believe in that stuff and I still believe, I don't think, the shows are good for certain things but they also fill people up with a whole bunch of stuff that they've still got to go back and, and perform in front of thousands of people or hundreds of people or, or two people, you know. It, it, it doesn't make them stars. Generally people at the other end judging them, in my opinion, are duds, you know. They've been created by the same thing, created by the, the same, the, the Guy Sebastians and the 
little different. They've been created by the same by the same scenes, you know. So I don't know. Maybe I'm being an old fuddy duddy, I don't know. I was just gonna add to that that being a musician is not an easy thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. I think it has to be a passion, you know, I mean every musician you meet generally has sometimes had to sacrifice so much to be where they are, and that's not a throwaway line. I mean, a lot of people do sacrifice a lot to be musicians, and it's for their benefit as well. You know, I've often said that playing music for 50 bucks, a gig is cheaper uh, is cheaper than paying a psychiatrist $480 for a session to fix your head up, you know? That's a kind of, that's a bit of a throwaway thing, but it, it's true. A lot of musicians are quite, quite depressive people, you know, and if they're playing music, they're happy, and if they're not, they're sort of looking at their own asses and going, well, why, why, why is this not happening, you know? And there's quite a lot of them around. I'm probably one of them at times as well. Yeah, you, you satisfies a bit, but I don't look at it like I've sacrificed anything. I just look at it like I'm, I'm really lucky. Because the people I have around me, my friends and the people I play music with me, are, are in the same boat. And they are, the majority of them are amazing people, you know? And I would rather hang out with those people than some moneyed up dickhead who thinks they own houses and cars and uh, and having lots of money in the bank is the most important thing in the world. And of course, you and I and most of the people we know know that that's not true, you know? We're fulfilled with something much deeper and much more meaningful than money. There you go, I've expressed that one for you. And um, yeah, and you touched on why music then, and, and do you think that a lot of the musicians, it, it's the need to have some creative outlet for their um, emotions? Yeah, de definitely, that's, that's what I was saying. That's what you said it in a nutshell, really. Yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, you write happy songs, you write sad songs, you write songs that have not got any meaning at all, or just got a tune there and you chuck some words at them. Yeah. But really, the, the meaningful songs, the songs that move you, are generally something that you you feel uh, an association with, you know? You know love, you know, disaster, uh, all, all these sorts of things that move us. And do you have a favourite song that you've written yourself? Look, I, I think for me, my favourite song is, is The Lonely Journey Home because it, talk, it, it, it talks about me, it talks about music, it talks about immigration, it talks about the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the things that happened when I came here and the sad things about, that happened as well. So, and four verses, it kind of uh, encapsulates uh, a whole bunch of stuff that happened to me and a whole bunch of other people uh, in the late 60s and 70s. So yeah, that's my favourite song. And has it changed over time? Uh, look, I've, I haven't written that many songs, you know, but in my opinion, that's my favourite song because it, lyrically it tells a, a story uh, and musically, I like, I like the music of it. So yeah, it's my, it hasn't changed all that much, it's just that's my favourite song. With your bands, you do play a fair few different covers. How do you choose which songs you, you want to cover? Well, they usually fit in a genre of probably Zydeco, ska, kind of reggae, sort of you know, rock and roll, and a bit of country as well. That's the sort of music I like, so I sort of like that kind of music. I bring my own thing to that. I, I bring my influences to all those genres of music, you know, and that's when you... Say, for instance, if you hear me singing Johnny Two Bad, I don't sing Johnny Two Bad like a black guy or, or a guy from Jamaica. I, I sing it like a Scotsman. <laughs> and I think that's how it should be done, you know. If you're going to 
sing somebody else's song, sing it like, you know, you would sing it. Not try and copy how they sing it, but, you know, how you, you interpret it, you know? It's a, a bit like folk music in the sense that what I've learned about the folk music over time is that a lot of those songs start with a particular lyric and then the next person who, who grabs the song adds their lyric to it and then the next person, so the, the melody or the, the, the formation of the song or the feeling of the song is still there but the story changes for each of the generations or groups that the songs move through. Yeah, definitely, and some, 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 sometimes to the detriment of the song, but a lot of the time not. You know, like, I'm, again, back to that song, Johnny Too Bad, uh, Steve Held did a version of Johnny Too Bad, which I really liked, and it was it had no blackness of, about it at all. And also a guy called John Martin, who's a Scottish musician, who has had, had a big influence on me, did a, a version of it as well. And two of them are light years apart. And, and Jimmy Cliff's version is somewhere in the middle, you know? So I think my version of it's kind of got all those influences in it. For instance, the last part of Johnny Too Bad, I stole off Steve Hill because he, he went back to the chorus. And, you know, like it's, it, you just pick the bits that you like. And also, you sing songs that you feel comfortable singing or, or playing, you know? You don't sing and play songs that you, she's done that, you, you, that are, are too difficult, really. I mean, ultimately, you play them the, the songs that you, you like, you know? What basically has made you stay in Australia and not go back to Scotland? Oh, I've tried to go back to Scotland on numerous occasions. I've tried to go back there and, and live and play. I spent a year there trying to live and play there. And uh, when, when, when winter arrived, I realised the gigs dried up and I couldn't really live there and play music. And that was, the, you know, that was in the early 2000s when I, I was being unrealistic and thinking that what I had was kind of going to make me a lot of money. And I played the Edinburgh Fringe Festival as well and I lost money. I mean, I ended up going backwards about $3,000 instead of making some money. I did eight shows there and lost money. So I started to have a realisation that uh, it's very, very difficult to make money from music. So I stopped, yeah, so I stopped actually thinking that it was a, a path to, you know, me making money. And instead I started to think that this was something that was enjoyable and it made me feel good and, uh, and it kept me away from psychiatrists. And you guys get gigs nearly every weekend. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of, a lot of begging goes a long way. <laughs> if you have, if, as a musician, if you, uh, you believe in what you're doing and you, you know that what you're doing appeals to a certain amount of people and it makes you happy in the people around you, it kind of doesn't matter whether there's three people there or four people there, because the other hundred people that never turned up are probably other gigs or they're doing something other. Look, you were at my gig on Sunday, that was an experiment, there was a whole new people in the nudgels, I'm trying to get a new sort of nudgel thing happening and then there was lots of exciting moments, there was lots of great playing and there was lots of mistakes as well, but hey. And, and that's all a part of a live performance and I was going to ask you, what was the first gig you ever went to? Uh, well, God. I'm really old, you've got forgotten one of the changes. The one that really sticks out in my head, and I actually, there's some gigs I think I've been to, and I, ha I haven't been to, you know what I mean? I've manifested this this thing that I've actually was there, but I wasn't. You understand? Yeah, it's, it's kind of weird. So the first gig I went to, 
that, that made me kind of go, oh my God, that was quite amazing, was, right, it's really difficult to remember. It's, it's on about the 60s here, it's a long time ago. I think one of, the, one of the bands I first went to see was a band called The Poets, and they were a mixture of a band that turned into the sensational Alec Harvey band, and they were from Glasgow, and the guitarist was a guy called Sal Clement. The night uh, that Jimi Hendrix died, and somebody came in with the newspaper and, and walked up on stage and sort of gave it to the guitar player who was Al Clements, who looked at it and, and went, Jimi Hendrix was dead, the gig's finished, and the place was like there was a thousand people in the place, and we all went home. So yeah, I think that was the gig. And I, I don't, I've not made that up, that, I think that's true. That was the one that stuck in my head. Yeah, well, I reckon that would stick in most people's head the day that Jimi Hendrix died. What's your favourite song of all time? <laughs> that, that's an incredibly hard question. Huh? My favourite song of, of all time, the one that moves me the most, is a song called Water Water by Ben Smith. Oh, wow. And what is it about that song that moves you? Uh, the fact that he's talking about something. And the tune, the tune's beautiful. It, I've always liked the song, but the, the thing that it, it got me was that Michelle, my partner's dad, who's 85, came to one of Ben's gigs. And he heard that song, and it completely, he kept, he kept wanting me up and said, can you get me a copy of that song? Can I, I'll give him a copy of it eventually, you know? And it, he, he just loved it. And he was a guy that never met Ben Smith before, and never heard me playing music before or anything. I'd just been going out with Michelle for a short amount of time, and that song kind of moved them. So, yeah, there you go, I'll just say that. For too long, I'll come undone. And everything I work for will just fall around my feet See, old man, he's still holding on It's something I respect If it means a lot to me, then water, water, everything What has influenced your playing style and has that changed over time? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Uh, as far as the uh, one's concerned, my... my uh, I've been influenced by a number of different people. Stan Getz, Pharaoh Sanders, a guy called Steve Dagg, who is an Australian saxophone player, who I got to play with a few weeks ago for the first time. He was the first person I kind of heard when I first came to Melbourne. A guy called uh, Dean Hilsman, who plays with the Melbourne Sky Orchestra. He's got a fantastic tone. Uh, uh, Paul Williamson uh, is another great Melbourne saxophone player. Yeah, a lot of Australian guys have really good me. A guy called Kyle Aird, who used to play with the Zydeco Jump has been a big influence on the, my tone. So, yeah, there's a few of them. I'm not a huge lover of John Coltrane uh, because he, he's just too good. <laughs> <laughs> I can't play like John Coltrane. Uh, and uh, Charlie Packer is a motherfucker as well. So I kind of like what they do, but Bebop is just too hard to get my head around. So uh, they never really influenced me that much. Is there an instrument that you wish you played, apart from guitar? <laughs> uh, trombone. 
And what do you love about trombone? Uh, I love the sound, I love the, the harmonics that come out of trombone when it's played properly, and I love the expression you can get a trombone. And I also, I'm very much into the, the bass clef, the lower part of the register of music as well, so I do like all that low stuff. So yeah, that's the only reason. Fantastic, and I've got a couple of quirky questions for you. So this is the 10 quick questions. I'm giving you two options and you just got to choose which of the options you prefer. Guitar or drums? Drums. Beatles or Elvis? Beatles. ABBA or the Ramones? <laughs> the Ramones. Nirvana or Pearl Jam? Nirvana. The Go-Betweens or Paul Kelly? Paul Kelly. Country or drum and bass? Country. Classical or hip-hop? Classical. Gigs or the studio? Oh, that's a hard one. Uh, that's the only hard one you give me. Uh, gigs or the studio? Oh, oh God. Stude gigs. Uh, <laughs> uh, both of them. I, I, can, I can split those two because it's really exciting to make music and uh, in the studio and it's really exciting to play it. Probably gigs, actually. They're just by a whisker. House or trance? Oh, house. The Sex Pistols or Joy Division? <laughs> Joy Division. Bonnie Prince Billy told me he would do a duet with me, and I'm wondering what song do you think that Bonnie Prince Billy should should duet with me? Oh, well, hold on. Okay, uh, you should do a uh, Hungover Together again. Ah, oh, that would be great. Yeah, that would be a good song to do with him, uh, and uh, you could ham it up. <laughs> I just want to end by saying thank you so much for joining Making a Musician today. I've really enjoyed interviewing you and um, I hope you've enjoyed the experience too. Well, uh, thank you and I've probably learned a lot about myself as well today. Uh, it's a really good concept and uh, I, I will definitely come up with some other people for you to do this with because I think it's a really good thing. It's, a, it's not only a good thing for people to interesting thing for people to hear, but it's a good thing for the musician to uh, unload a few things on you. <laughs>